Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this show, we're going to talk with James Keach. His current film, Turning Point, follows a group of scientists as they search for a cure for Alzheimer's disease. You've been in the business ever since you were a toddler. Yeah, I've been, I've been around a while. I remember uh, you were in the Long Riders. It was the Keeches uh, against the Carradines. Uh, or the it Keech- was the, the Keech gang and the Carradine gang. Well, the young, the co, the younger James gang, and the and then the Quades, Dennis yeah. and Randy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like all the they got all the brothers together, and you, you wrote that screenplay, right? I, I yeah, I, I I wrote the original, and then uh, my brother and I worked on it together, and uh, there was several writers. Walter Hill did a rewrite. The director, of course. Yeah, Walter Hill's great. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't take credit for all of that, but the concept started with us and, and uh, we got obviously screenplay credit and executive producer credit, but it was a labor of love from a lot of, a lot of sources there. Well, over the last several years, you've been in the documentary space. Well, it started with Walk the Line. It started, you know, you do, success has, uh, it has a way of, uh, attack, you, you get identified with that. We did Walk the Line, produced it, and... Um, Johnny, Johnny and uh, June were the godfathers of my, our kids. John asked me to make that movie, and uh, uh, so I was. We, 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 it turned out pretty well. Yeah. He did that song. I think it was like a Nine Inch Nails song. Right, hurt. Oh my God. His voice, just the sound of his voice, just the weatheredness and the life in his voice, was yeah. amazing. How did you get involved with Johnny Cash? Well, Johnny Cash is a big fan of uh, the Long Riders, actually, and um, he was, uh, one day, he stopped, he was in his tour bus, my dad had an office over on Laurel Canyon, and it was Stacy Keats Productions, and uh, John saw the sign, and he stopped, he got out of the bus, he walked in, and he said, hey, I'm here to see the Keats brothers, I want to talk to them. We weren't there, obviously, but my dad was, and he sat down and talked to my dad for like an, an hour, an hour and a half, he put us in touch with each other, and then... John asked me to direct him in a, in a few shows for television, and we became good friends. And then he asked me to, to do uh, his movie. He said a lot of people have been talking to him about it, but but he didn't trust him. He said, he said the one thing he, he felt about Hollywood was that they would not put God into the movie. And, and he, he was a very, he had very deep faith. He wasn't a religious guy. He didn't go to like church, but he, it was very important to him that that was part of his story, a, a big part of his story in June's. And um, I assured him that that would be the case. And, and uh, so we made the movie. It took quite a few years to get the script right. We, we were able to read the script to him, you know, to June and to John before he, they passed. The surprising thing was is that June passed before John, and we always thought it was going to be the other way around because John was battling. Um, Shy Drager syndrome. Just before he passed away, I talked to him on the phone. He says, "I'm going to go see June soon," and uh, he died soon thereafter. So he was a great man. Great man. Did you ever get starstruck when you were doing your films, or like you never got starstruck? 
No, I never did. That that you know, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> but you know, I I do recall walking into a, a couple times walking into rooms with John and watching other people get starstruck, which was <laughs> was interesting. I mean, John, you know, he he. he for, you know, for, I think I've been starstruck a couple times, and it's, uh, I think when I met Halle Berry one time, you know, it's her beauty, and, uh, but soon thereafter, you know, they're human, you know, and I think that, I think a, a lot of people, they don't realize that they're looking at an image, it's an image, it's not a reality. The person is not necessarily the song that, that they sing, or the, the, the movies that they make. Those are, those are works of art. You know, obviously that's an expression of who they are. They do look like that, but that's not necessarily, I mean, take for example, Bill Cosby. The sadness of, of what was behind the, the comedy is, you know, it's catastrophic, you know, but that's not who, Bill Cosby, if you met him, you probably would have, some people would have been starstruck. You know, oh, I remember him for the, you know, his TV shows and he's that and he's, but that's not who he was. It's only a part of who he is, I guess. Well, now tell me about your involvement with this new film, uh, Turning Point, A Quest for a Cure. And uh, I think if you were to ask people, the majority of people would say, yes, I, I have a family member or a friend that has Alzheimer's or has passed away from it because my grandfather and grandmother died from it. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, I was reading that you started looking at this issue when you worked on the Glenn Campbell film because he, uh, he was suffering from it, correct? Yeah, the Glenn Campbell film, when we, we started working on it, we were only gonna do five shows, five weeks, and um, it was the Julian Raymond who was produced his last few albums, and he, he was working with my son Johnny Keach, who's a musician. Johnny was a teenager at that time. When he came over to the studio to Trevor Albert, my partner, and I, he said, would you guys do Glenn Campbell to, to, to film his show? And we said, well, uh, we, I said, I'd already done a biopic. I don't know if I want to do another one. And he said, no, that's not it. He's got Alzheimer's. And at that point, I, I was very reluctant to uh, get involved. This was Trevor. I mean, there's, there's not, a lot of, not a lot of entertainment in Alzheimer's. At least that was the perception that we had at that time. Obviously, it's a very tragic and debilitating disease, as you know, from your own family experience. But that said, we met Glenn and he was so funny. He came in and he said, uh, uh, I don't have no Alzheimer's, I got part-timers. He pointed to his wife and he says, when a man findeth a good woman, he findeth a good thing, I found me a good thing. And uh, he, he was just such an affable, wonderful man. So we said, okay, we'll do the show and, and you know we'll film the show for you guys. And it was supposed to be five shows over five weeks. Turned out to be 171 shows over two years. And we got to see from mild cognitive impairment, which is the first stages of Alzheimer's, which Glenn had when we met him, to the end of his life and his career. So we got to see up close and very personal the trajectory of Alzheimer's, the effect that it has on, on uh, caregivers, the uh, effect that it had on the audiences. Uh, when Glenn would sing a song and forget it, they'd finish the song for, with him. The world looked to be a brighter place than it does right now in terms of people supporting one another. They, they supported him in his illness, and Glenn knew what he had, and he knew what he was up against and what it was gonna take him, and he wanted the world to see it. We, we had a screening that Richard Roper, a critic in Chicago, had 
he loved the film and there was a big screening in Chicago and Nancy Lynn, who was one of the executive producers of the show, um, was friends with Phyllis Farrell, who is in the film, who's an executive of Eli Lilly and said, you know, uh, would you guys be interested in sponsoring this on CNN? And they, they sent down a few people to watch the movie uh, in Chicago and they loved it and they said, would you come to Indianapolis? And so we went up to Indianapolis and sitting in a restaurant across the street from uh, the drug company, Eli Lilly, this young waitress came over and she said, uh, what are you all doing here? And uh, I said, well, we're, we're here to screen a film across the street over at the, the pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly. And I expected some really negative, snarky remark about a pharmaceutical company because at that time, everybody was railing that the pharmaceutical companies were the devil incarnate. And she said, oh, I love them. You love them? Huh, why is that? She said, because they saved my grandmother's life. She's got diabetes. And so all of a sudden I started, it, it, uh, the paradigm shifted a little bit. You know, I, I went, oh, that's, that's it. They, they make drugs that help people. It's not just about exploiting money, you know, and taking money from us for their drugs. So that shifted a little bit. And then we went across the street to meet, to show the film. And they were having a, uh, they wanted us to meet the research scientists first. And we came in and there, there was a man named Mark, uh, uh, Pat May, who was in the film and Eric Seamers and, and Ron D'Amato, they're all in the film. Um, and uh, they said, oh, by the way, this is a, a really important day. Pat May's retiring today. This is his last day here. And, and I said, oh, wow. So what drugs have you uh, developed? And he said, well, we've tried to develop many drugs, but uh, I've worked on one for about 20 years and it was called semagasistat and and uh, and then one of the other guys said yes and and Pat has a very unfortunate story he was working on the drug and just this uh, past year his wife suddenly died of a brain aneurysm and then his father came down with Alzheimer's and the drug failed I said and how long have you worked on this and he said uh, 20 years and I said so wait wait a second you guys work on drugs for 20, 30 years and nothing works. And you guys keep coming to work with a positive attitude. And they said, yeah, we're scientists. That's what we do. I said, it would be like me making a movie for 30 years, working on a film for 30 and nobody ever seeing it. And I thought, man, that is a dramatic story. I don't think the world understands what research scientists and developing drugs is about. And I just said at that time, I was so moved by it. I said, this is a film. This is a film, you know? And I said, it's, it, you know, and I, and so uh, it was about eight months later, I, I you know, I would, I'd be talking to them and the six, Glenn Campbell was a tremendous success on CNN and was nominated for an Academy Award and won three Grammys. And, and, I, and I kept thinking about this story and I talked to them and, I, and they called me up and they said, are you still interested in doing that story? We have a drug that we think might work would you be interested in, in tracking it and telling your story? And I said, yeah, I would very much so. I said, but this is the deal. You have no controls over what I say or do. If I find there's skeletons in the closet, they're coming out. I said, no editorial control, nothing. And they said, okay, we're fair with, fine with that. He said, but you have to say, sign a non-disclosure agreement with, if you find out something before the world's supposed to find out you, you know, you're going to go to jail if you tell anybody about it.
you know, and working on it, it's like uh, I jokingly say to my friends, I said, I think I deserve a PhD now. I couldn't pronounce semagasistat, solanezumab, aducanumab. I had no idea what the blood-brain barrier was. I had no idea what tau pathogens are, the tau hypothesis, the amyloid hypothesis. Alzheimer's, what it does is it, it forms plaques and what they call plaques and tangles in the brain. And it literally, uh, the plaques and the tangles literally hit the neurons, which are in the brain, and suffocate them. And, and, and they don't come back. So what they're trying to do is develop something that can get through the blood-brain barrier, not hurt the brain, but to cleanse these tangles and plaques. It's kind of like if you getting a ball of yarn and just like continually wrapping it around the neuron, you know, and it just it chokes the life out of it, and that's why you start losing your memory. And so they're trying to find things that will stop that amyloid from forming in the brain, or and the tau is comes after the amyloid. So amyloid forms, and then the tau comes into the brain, and, and it does its suffocation. So there's two different hypotheses. You attack the tau first, or you attack the amyloid first. And they're trying all sorts of different things, and they're getting closer because of the deductive reasoning. They're, if something doesn't work, they know that's not gonna work. And they're looking at uh, um, um, gene therapies, they're looking at light therapies, they're looking at many different ways to, to track it. And now, because they, they have a PET scan that can have put a tracer into the brain, it used to be that you couldn't you couldn't diagnose Alzheimer's until somebody was dead. And then you could do an autopsy and look at their brain and see the plaques and the tangles and the, you know, and how the brain had, and it was very similar to what's going on in pro football with uh, CTE. The, you can see it now. And they now have a, a, a new PET scan that can trace amyloid. So it's an injectable thing, you know, goes into the body. It's, it's kind of like what they do with heart, you know, the heart. And now they can see it in the brain. So what they're discovering, too, is that the earlier they can attack it, because it takes 20 years, they think, for most Alzheimer's to take over and really start doing deep damage. All of us, as we age, is gonna, are going to have some sort, of, some sort of memory problems. Human beings probably weren't designed to live to be over 100 years old, and, and, or you know, used to be. They used to think at 65 you were pretty much cooked because of... Um, the drugs and the lifestyle changes that we've made, the human beings are living longer. But uh, at any rate, there's hope on the horizon. But once again, you know, we got to count on science. You must love the documentary space. I like it when it's emotional, I guess. I come from a narrative film background, and, 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 and I was an actor many years ago. And, and uh, Patty Chayefsky, who's one of my favorite writers, he wrote films like Network and Marty. He was a fantastic writer. So, but Patty Chayefsky simplified it. And when he said, as a writer, when he said, who is your hero? What do they want? And what is preventing them from getting it? That was the premise of a good storyteller of a good film. So I like to relate films to the emotional journey of who is your hero, what do they want, and what's preventing them from getting it. Our heroes are research scientists. What do they want? They want to find a cure. What's preventing them from getting it? Nature, not fun, being funded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can emotionally connect the, your characters with that, then you're gonna connect with, to me. You're, I'm, it's gonna connect to me as an audience member. 
you know, and that's going to make me want to keep watching the movie. It's like I, I love action shows, but if I don't like the people, if I don't care what happens to them, I turn it off, you know, and it's 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 uh, it's so I love the documentary space, but I, you know, presenting facts and facts and then and then it, it, that that kind of documentary, I, I don't stick with it for very long. But if you prevent a character, pre present a character, this is this starts with this person, and then they had took this journey, and it turned this way and that way and this way and that way. I'll stick with it, and hopefully by the end of it, I will learn something about myself and them that I didn't know, or identify something in my own life that I connect with. In the last few years, being able to make documentaries and shift my career into that area, it allows me to reflect my journey in life you know, and hopefully impact and make, make the world a better place. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it, it's not, it just, just create a little bit more empathy and compassion for the plight of others. My dad always said the one thing he abhorred was indifference and apathy and the plight of others. And so as a filmmaker, I'm trying not to be apathetic about the plight of others, which is what Linda and the Mockingbirds is about, is what Glenn Campbell's about. It's what this movie is about. It's what Augie, I don't know if you saw that. It's about I didn't see that one, no. So it's really powerful. It's about a man with ALS. And uh, and then again, you have movies like uh, Walk the Line, where it's a movie about forgiveness. It's not, we're just not feeding the masses fodder for their entertainment, you know, which is fine, which is great, you know. There was, there was a, a film that you did, and you have a small part, but it's, it's so pivotal to the movie. And it was when you did, uh, you were the motorcycle cop on National Lampoon's <laughs> Vacation. I love that, yeah. because the whole setup is just fantastic. I mean, uh, they put the dog... Because they don't they take the grandmother across country with them, and she had this really annoying dog. Yes. And so they tie it to the they tie it to the bumper, and they forget it. It's so sad. But you pull up and and just you, you just the way that you you say that you felt so bad for this dog, and it's true. It's 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 actually really tragic, but in the context of the movie, it was funny. Yeah, I'd written a movie with Harold Ramis called Armed and Dangerous. Harold said, hey, would you come down and, and do this part in this movie? It'll just be a couple of days. It'll be, we'll, you'll have some fun. We'll have some laughs. So I did. And it turned out, you know, that I, more, I get more autograph people sending me that picture of Chevy and I. Oh, every day I probably get, you know, two or three requests to sign that, that picture, you know. And it's considered, I guess, one of the top ten comedy scenes in movies. I don't know. It was just a fluke, you know. And it, it, Chevy and I... It, we couldn't stop laughing. You know, we tried it a bunch of different ways. And one take where I came walking up and my visor on my helmet was just completely covered in blood. We, we tried a whole bunch of different things and it just, it was funny. The sad thing about that day though, is I remember it so, so well. It was the day I got off the plane in, uh, in uh, where the Four Corners are down in, in, in Colorado and, uh, and Vic Morrow and the John and, and the Twilight Zone oh. tragedy had happened the night before. So I got off the plane and we were hearing about all the stuff that had happened. I think, too, we were all we needed some com comedy on that day. It was a very sad day for our industry. Yeah, I remember that. John Landis was one yeah. of the directors. Yeah, he was the director. Yeah. Oh, 
Yeah. Well, but I just think with uh, with National Lampoon's Vacation because you have this. I mean, the Griswold character, he's got such heart. And yeah. he's kind of like Little Mary Sunshine. Nothing's going to get this guy down, and yet he's against all obstacles. But he just wants to have this perfect, idolized vacation. And, and you know, the kids are kind of jaded and all these things. And it just had it had such heart. Yeah. There was an innocence about the film. It, yeah. Yeah, it was really, really good. Do you have, out of all the work that you've done, do you have one that's a favorite for you? I, I think... Every time I was able to work with my brother was always very, very special to me. We did three movies together. The first movie I did, we played Orville and Wilbur Wright, and then The Long Riders, and then he directed me in Six Characters in Search of an Author, and I directed him in a couple more movies. So I think yeah, working with Stacy was was very special to me. My favorite thing that he does right now is American Greed. He's the voice of American Greed, and it just it cracks me up every time. I hear it because he's so over the top. He was a scumbag. He really enjoys doing that. He's and now he was a scumbag. Years. Now, did you have a lot of theater training growing up? I went to the Yale Northwestern and Yale Drama School. So yeah. Yeah, and I found that the really good actors with the sustainable careers are the ones that they go through that training, and they really learn the craft. Yeah. There's gym actors, and then there's legit actors, you know. And that's not to say that you have to have a theatrical training. I mean, Walter Hill, I remember him saying to me, he says, I hate the theater. And I said, why is that, Walter? He said, no (laughs) (laughs) close-ups. Being a theater actor, and if you're you're trained, you you have a craft. Acting is a craft. It's not, you know, Robert Lewis, who was a great acting teacher, a member of the group theater, he wrote a book called Method or Madness, Actors need to understand what the intention of the scene is. and But I think that's true with all good storytellers. You know, when you write something, you have to know what the intention of what you're writing is. And you have to, there are certain rules that, you know, it's, writing is a craft too, you know, and it's also an art. I, you know, I think it's great if you have the theater background. I think it'd be, it's good for everybody to understand what it is to be, to, to get up on the stage and, and to walk in someone else's shoes for a while. It creates some compassion for other people sometimes. It seems like your father was a big influence on your very life. Much, very much so. You know, he, my dad was the kind of man who, who I didn't learn this until much later when I was much older. He would go to uh, hospitals on Sunday after church and, and re- go read and visit people that nobody was coming to visit to. And he didn't tell anybody. He, he, my mom knew it, but he didn't tell us. You know, I wouldn't have been. He just thought it was the right thing to do, to not to have some concern for other people and to be compassionate and to never feel like we're better than anybody else. We, we're more fortunate some, than some other people. But, you know, uh, when my my dad is when his best friends was uh, was a gay uh, a, a designer. Um, uh, Charlie Vance was the man's name. And Charlie was one of my I love Charlie. He would always give me birthday for he'd do these great cartoons and so there was no homophobia there was no in my my mom's mom would you know would constantly take care of all the people that worked for her I mean it was just it was a you know compassion and 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 empathy was was what was taught that's who he was 
he wasn't afraid to give me a kiss or give me a hug. He didn't have that macho thing going. And yet he was a very strong guy. So he, he was very important in my brothers and my life. I miss him. Yeah. For more information about the film, visit turningpointmovie.com. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. (laughs) For more on Center Stage, visit stageandscreen.com. And hey, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.